morning I'd like to speak about the contemplations on compassion. One of the most beautiful feelings a person can experience as a human being is unconditional compassion. And if each one of you hearken back to maybe a moment, just a moment that you felt that in your life, and you can uh, really have a sense of connecting with that openness, that ability to just connect unconditionally with someone else or with yourself, you know how beautiful and rare that can really be in one's life. When our genuine caring can turn to and connect with the suffering of another. And when that genuine caring can turn to and connect with our own suffering, it's even more beautiful in a way. For most of us as human beings, it's, it's even rarer than connecting with others because so much of our being raised in, in our particular societies, cultures, compassion is often thought about as helping other people, but not so much about helping ourselves. This afternoon I was just listening to a lecture online by Dr. Stephen Porges, and he's uh, uh, the director of the Brain and Body Center at the University of Illinois, and his field is neural biology. And this lecture was how it connects to compassion. His study spans the biology of the brain and the nervous system and connects into personal psychology and then into um, sociological implications. So how does he sees how this affects our need as human beings for compassionate connection to one another. It's not just something that um, is a psychological thing that we train ourselves in or we feel, but it's actually a very biological yearning that we have. He gave quite a unique description of compassion from the place of the giver of compassion and also from the side of the receiver of compassion. He didn't say he was doing this, but I saw that he was um, showing both sides. So on the giver's side, he said, compassion is a manifestation of our deep need to engage and to bond with others. And then on the receiver's side, he said, compassion is a component of our biological quest for safety in the proximity of another. And when I took that in, when I was listening to his, his talk, I thought, how many times have I, you know, just um, seeing the, the suffering of another? And even when that suffering was about being blamed myself or being put on the spot somehow. Um, And then I saw the other person suffering from that, the perpetrator of that, how my heart felt like I couldn't help but feel open and, and see that person suffering. Oh, that person suffers too. Or being on the receiving end when I've had moments of just being hurt by 
maybe a microaggression in the world or some other kind of aggressive act. It could be even bigger than that where I felt, um, oh, I wish somebody were nearby or if somebody were nearby, I would feel like I needed to reach out and I would want to bond with that person even for a moment. And like, you know, we have friends that say, I'm with you. I bear witness or I got your back or something like that. And we yearn for that. We want that in our lives. We, this is basic for us as human beings. So we, we have, as uh, Dr. Stephen Porges was trying to point out here, we have this innate yearning in a good way for that kind of connection in our lives. And so it is with us here on retreat too. Of course, when this happens, we feel a, an open-hearted flow of positive energy within ourselves and towards others. And there's this unhesitating courage to reach out when we see the suffering of another, to be able to face and to go towards and to be with what is hard to bear. But here we're really taking that energy that we have and reaching in and really being able to touch that the hardship, that difficulty that we're facing with ourselves. Or maybe we remember a difficulty in our lives and then we, you know, just remembering it is hurtful. So what about touching that place, turning that compassion inward and feeling that sense of This is hard to bear, but I can bear it. So we feel a sense of true wholeness. Um, It's a kind of non-religious sacredness. You know, it doesn't have to do with being Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or Jewish or anything at all. It it really just has to do with a kind of um, kind of shamanic wholeness. I say that because I use that word because it's natural. I come from those kind of cultures. Um, Hawaii and the Philippines, it's all very like that. There's a naturalness to letting ourselves be drenched in in a rain. Or there's a naturalness of us to be in the wonder of lightning and thunder in the world. There's a naturalness of our feeling connected and whole and part of everything and not apart. But somehow we feel um, we feel the strength of it all. We feel the strength of nature kind of coming inside of our pores with all of its elements, earth, wind, air, fire, and the sacredness of that. And we know that we can face not just what is pleasant, but we can face also the pain of life. And this is what it takes to be a complete human being in this world. I mean, yes, we can say we're complete as we are, but we, we get to see other ways that we're more and more complete. Um,
I remember once hearing um, a Native American Indian being interviewed, and the interviewer asked him, what is your goal for yourself and for your tribe? And he said, you know, I just want to be something very simple. I want to be a true human being. And he didn't describe that for himself, but I just got the sense of that, you know, the ability for him, for myself, for all beings in their own way to be able to face everything that comes to us in our lives. Not just, you know, kind of just scurrying around and patching up a whole lot of joyful moments so that we can say, oh, I lived a joyful life, or, um, but to be able to face it all, just all the joys and sorrows that we're faced with. It's not just a feeling of strength, but to me it's a feeling of vastness. And it's a feeling of being connected in that vastness so that I feel that whatever's happening in my life um, around me and and it's kind of um, mm, connected me to hardships that I know that um, I can face this too. You know, we think of all the things we've gone through in our lives and yeah, we can face it all. And maybe the next thing that happens or that this thing that happens, oh, it's really hard. It's really hard. But somehow, just bit by bit, you know, just touch it a little bit in a moment and then back off and touch it a little bit again and then back off. That's how I do it. I don't just try to pull my petals open. I see how much I can take. And then you get those homeopathic doses so that you feel like, okay, you took this little bit of dukkha or suffering and let that come in and do what it does. And the next time you touch it, there's going to be more strength in your heart, in your mind, in your body to face it all. So somehow, some way, in the mystery of life, compassion makes us feel complete as a human being because we're able somehow to do that. Being able to care for ourselves, which contains in our lives a considerable amount of distress. So this gives us a lot of meaning and purpose in our lives. And when we're not just scurrying around trying to find the next bit of happiness, but gathering the strength to face um, whatever comes. So in the Dharma, it's no wonder that these qualities of strength, uh, loving kindness, compassion, um, equanimity, courage, various others like that, They're celebrated as inner wealth, an inner wealth. So we have this kind of inner wealth of things that we can have as resources for us to go to, to say, I'm going to put this in front of me now 
and use this part of what I have in my heart to accompany me on this journey. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's not just a, an emotion, it's more like a medicine for us. You know, and we, we give it, we have to give it a lot of trust sometimes and patience to let it do its thing. That inner wealth is not something that anyone can take away from us. Um, we can have physical and material possessions that can be taken away, even parts of our body can, but not this inner strength. No one can take that away from us. So I think of that a lot. I ponder on that a lot when difficult things come up. So I want to connect this strength with the Four Noble Truths, which Greg spoke about the other evening. In the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the Buddha laid out these Four Noble Truths. And I'm just going to repeat a little bit what he said, what Greg said the other night. The Buddha started out with the reality of what we're all faced with as human beings. Remember that the Buddha was a realist. Some people, you know, talk about the Buddha's path and say, oh, it's so pessimistic. I mean, the first noble truth is life is suffering. I'm not going to go to that teaching. You know, what, what a thing to invite people to come into the Dharma. Life is suffering. That is the way that the first noble truth has been translated um, sometimes in the West. But actually, if you look at the Pali words, the first noble truth, it's... Um, the translation is, there is the truth of suffering. There's dukkha, which is suffering, and um, satcha means the truth. So it's translated to, there is the truth of suffering. And when I learned that, when I first came to the Dharma and I learned that, I thought, wow, somebody, I mean, this is really great because somebody's saying what was the elephant in the room all the time. You know, it was all about chasing after happiness. But now it's like stating the truth of how things are. And I felt um, like my heart was really seen when I came across the Dharma for the first time. It felt really um, verified you know, that that's the truth, that's the truth that I saw and confirmed. So this is not to be in denial about, in in and of itself, you know, it sort of accepts me as a human being. Because for a long time, I thought that I wasn't good enough. Sometimes I still think that, but it's more like an empty echo. Um, Or that um, I just didn't give myself permission to be really, really human. So that first noble truth gave me a lot of permission to be human. Throughout his life, the Buddha taught the quality of compassion and that if we didn't put that compassion next to, especially next to the first truth, the first noble truth of suffering, that would be very hard to walk this path. 
when I was in my 20s, I came across my first Dharma teacher, Manindraji. I think I told a story about him the other evening. And um, I asked him one time, what is the purpose of my life anyway? You know, why, why am I, why is this coming to me the way that it's coming to me in my life? And what am I going to do with my life? And he said, the purpose of your life is to develop wisdom and compassion, both. And not just to fall into keeping your heart open, but the compassionate side, which is the compassionate side, but to also see life with wisdom. You know, to be able to say, this is the truth of how it is. Part of life is this, that it's going to be distressful. It's not going to be always satisfying. So we're constantly faced with this. And he gave compassion a vitally important role to develop on our spiritual path. So on our path here together in our lives, we've all seen for ourselves that when we open to something really difficult, we need to bring great understanding, understanding of wisdom to it, and we need to bring, which is kind of very firm and confident and straight, and to be able to also face it with an open heart, to come to it with a heart open instead of like, you know, with no nobility. To be able to have that kind of nobility that has the the grace and the balance of compassion and wisdom. So with compassion, we're able to open to many levels, not just the levels that are easy for us, but the levels that are really, really hard for us to open to. And then we learn that way. This is from Khalil Gibran. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as a stone of the fruit must break open, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So I know that um, we're all, you know, living into that kind of truth. It's not that maybe some of us or you have experienced that fully already, but I feel like I'm still living into the truth of that and, and learning along the way. Sometimes people say to me, well, oh, you have a heavy travel schedule and you know, you have to come from so far, and why do you do it anyway? <laughs> you know, always traveling, etc. And you know, one of my first answers is that I love to learn, and I'm still learning. You know, you still, you, you open up more and more. Sometimes when the most innocuous thing that you think you've said happens in that room where I am and you're with me, and you think it's just kind of a off-the-cuff remark, it's something that really wakes me up about how you're facing life or about how I could see it in a different way. 
because we live in this electronic age, the frequency and intensity of seeing and hearing and knowing what's happening in the world is comes at a steady bombardment. Uh, the shifting and changing planet, the melting of the icebergs and the glaciers. Uh, not too long ago, I was in Mount Rainier doing a little hike and... Um, one of the rangers told me that there are 30 plus glaciers, you know, on, on around the mountain and this beautiful mountain in Washington state. And that um, they are melting at a rate never seen before. And I, I realized why the rivers were running so swiftly and so full. So there's that, there's changing ocean currents and sea levels, disappearing islands, hurricanes and earthquakes. And the heartbreak of this is that it affects a lot of human beings, of course, and a lot of creatures on, on the earth. Then, of course, there's a worldwide social, political and religious wars and all that happens in, in the travesty of that. Sometimes it's, you know, I can't even open the computer at night to look at BBC or even early in the morning. It's just too much. It kind of shuts my heart down. And it's, it's hard to open to compassion sometimes. So all the cultural, racial, economic inequities that are going on in the world disparities that are so gravely unfair. And of course, last but not least, the emotional tsunamis that are happening, you know, right here on our sitting cushions with family issues and and health issues and sometimes life and death issues and um, relationship issues. We carry with us so much here that we need compassion or else it's going to be really hard. So, as I said, usually compassion is thought of in in terms of helping others and facing the struggles of the world out there, but it's not so much thought of of turning it inward and saying, looking at what's going on here and being open to it. It's important to include the, the ability to be able to open to the truth of suffering. And you might watch in your own practice whether during the day, if you're doing things to avoid feeling the unpleasantness of it, or feeling the hurt of what you're going through. Maybe you remember something in your life that you brought here. Maybe it's an intergenerational thing, or or it's from a friend that you're not having a good time with, or a child, or a parent. And if you found that you come to that place and it's like, no, and you turn away from it, Sometimes when I see myself doing that, I decide that the next time it comes up, if I remember, 
then I say to myself, make an intention, the next time this comes up, I'm going to do my best to stop and to open and to feel that pain. Just to feel it. Not talk about it to myself. Not tell me the same old story, which never got me anywhere. (laughs) But to just feel it. So, um, like a, a friend therapist says to me, if you can feel it, you can heal it. Just coming close to it. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourselves, there will be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Isn't it so that when you see someone suffering um, through whatever, because of whatever reason, and you hearken back to something similar that you felt you know, you have that kind of empathy which is a precursor to compassion when you can, in your own way, stand in the shoes of someone else. That's empathy. Or in the, you know, feel close to the feelings of whatever those conditions are for another person. And then when we can open our hearts and feel that, we really, we make a connection somehow with our hearts, our bodies, and our minds. And That connection in and of itself is so healing. It's healing for the giver. It's healing for the receiver to be able to do that. Now they're they're having all these um, compassion um, trainings in hospitals um, so that the caregivers in the hospitals, the doctors and the nurses can learn to take more time and to really connect more. So we experience a lot of this pain that we have in the body through hunger, through illness. There's pain in the mind and the heart like sadness or hatred, holding tightly onto resentment or jealousy. It's, we see the fickleness of the uncontrollability of the mind. You know how it just jumps from one thing to another. And, and that can bring up a lot of fear also. We also see the mind, <laughs> you know, we, sometimes we want to hold on to our opinions, but sometimes the stories and things we want to hold on to that are pleasant keep falling away. And we start to see that we can't hold on to anything. And that becomes so scary. So we're becoming so familiar with vulnerability. And as you get deeper into practice, as you are now going into the second week of your practice, um, the understanding of vulnerability becomes very clear. In fact, sometimes we translate this dukkha, satcha, to there is the truth of vulnerability. Not, it's not just <clears throat> suffering, but you feel the slipperiness of life. It's just kind of like running through our fingers, like water. As we become more connected and open to what's going on within us, and we don't succumb to it, 
we don't fall into compassion fatigue. There's such a thing as compassion fatigue when we just open to too much suffering. That's why you have to do it slowly. And um, we get hopeless sometimes. You know, I feel that sometimes in my daily life. I just open to so much that's going in the world and with people that are close to me. And I feel like I'm just totally helpless and hopeless. We really have to watch ourselves there. So we see with honesty the elements of fear and anger, attachments to our own tightly held yet perhaps untrue viewpoints, and we're not letting go of being right. Um, There was once, maybe it was 15 years ago, there was a yogi here, like you, and um, she was going through a lot. And this was her saying, and then it became kind of a saying in the Dharma. She said, you know, Kamala, I'd rather be free than right. She was so holding on to her point of view about uh, something that was going on between her partner and herself. And she's, she was so tired. It took her about three weeks, or was it? She was here for three months. Maybe it took her, I I know it took her half of the retreat where she finally said, I'd rather be free than right. So she just let go of trying to be right. And she felt so, so relieved. So we have to, you know, allow ourselves to know those places inside of ourselves. The the feeling needing to hold on to our righteous anger, our guilt, or feeling even that unworthiness that kind of puts us in a deep hole and sends us kind of sliding down a slippery slope. So it's right there when we need to remember not to bring only like a mindful awareness to that moment, but to bring a tenderness to that moment of what's going on. Incline the mind and heart to compassion. So it's possible when we bring awareness to whatever is going on that we can also bring other factors into the picture as a support. It's like sometimes we need loving kindness, just that softness. You know that loving kindness turn to suffering actually turns into compassion. So compassion is nothing but loving kindness that's directly facing suffering. So sometimes it needs to be metta, loving kindness, sometimes compassion, sometimes forgiveness, sometimes it needs to be a sense of courage or a sense of seeing things as clearly as they are. Sometimes we need to slow down the thinking process. Um, We're thinking so much and all the words are going so fast that sometimes in interview, when I have um, been speaking to one of my, say Joseph, my my elder Dharma brother colleague, um, he would just say, slow down. And then another friend of mine, um, 
he would say, say those words and make each word really long. And I would say, okay, I'm sick and tired of this whole, and then fill in the blank. So just really slowing down is going to help because all the stories just rub us up and we can't get out of the whirlwind. Um, So those are some things that you can do. Sometimes it takes um, us really just taking a very quiet, full in-breath and without bothering our neighbors, you know, not like a ujjaya yoga breath, but just quietly an in-breath and then quietly an out-breath, like you're blowing out a candle. Make it really long. Because that activates a relaxation in actual in the actual physical body. So just to be able to do that really, really helps. That's actually a lot of compassion for ourselves to do that. Um, so we, sometimes we need these little techniques. It's not just all being aware, you know, it's slowing down, bringing a sense of intentional compassion. When I know I've been too hard on myself, I will say to myself, may I bring compassion into this next moment or to this next sitting, or to the next walking. And that really, that intention really magnifies and strengthens that, so that I remember to keep doing that. Many years ago, um, when I was practicing here during the multi-month retreats, it was a time when I was really going through a lot of physical pain in the body and really seeing a lot of things that the mind does that I'd never seen before. It was really awful. And I really needed for myself a lot of soothing to soothe myself a little more. And so, now I'm not suggesting that you do this, but but I would say I can can do my walking practice at night because, you know, we were sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk until 10 at night. And so I'd take a cup of tea and I'd put it um, at one end of one of the tables, you know, out there. And then I would do my walking practice back and forth so that I knew that I would just have to go this way and that way and my cup of tea would be there and ready, you know, to... And so I'd, you know, watch the mind think, oh, it's going to be, my cup of tea is here. Or it's going to be so nice to just have some soothing. Just noticing everything that happened also in between. But then it really got so bad that I thought, I don't think anybody's going to notice because people don't walk a lot at night there. And I was walking alone sometimes. So I got two cups of tea and I put one... (laughs) And I really did this, you know. I went back and forth and back and forth, and I knew that, okay, this is going to help me. I need just a little bit more. (laughs) So please don't do that, though. (laughs) 
anyway, it's okay to do the things that really help you to titrate your suffering and not to just open your petals. I remember um, the father of my children once said to me, um, you know, please don't pull my petals open. They're not ready. So apparently I did, you know, because we're not together. (laughs) And so, anyway. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't for that reason. Anyway. So we can't do that to ourselves or to others. So we have to be really careful about that. So I've heard so many stories uh, and people speak about realizing the strengths they had that they didn't know about when they were facing a lot of trials and tribulations in life. So I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. She gave me permission to tell this story. She was a cook at all of our, um, most of our, if not all of them, month-long retreats um, that were on Maui. And um, this is Margie's story. Margie's story, Margie. So I'm going to read something to you that she wrote. Um, so first she wrote this, she, she wrote out on her Caringbridge site this poem. This human being, uh, this poem uh, is by Rumi. This human being is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, Treat each guest honorably. He or she may be clearing you out for some new delight. So then she writes, As one week I will be going to the hospital, in one week I'll be going to the hospital for surgery that will deprive me of one-third of the organ responsible for allowing my body to receive the breath of life. The surgery will also be the means for determining whether I have a non-invasive versus aggressive form of cancer. This stake, the stakes are high. Rumi, Rumi reminds me that all of this may be some kind of blessing with its own gifts to offer. My house feels swept clean. I'm somehow feeling more fully alive with a life-threatening diagnosis right here in my face. I'm re-examining my relationship to every aspect of my life and asking the questions. How does this serve me and all that is of value to me? What is of value to me anyway? I don't have all the answers, but the process has been enlivening, energizing, and sometimes fun. And so I plan to welcome my next guest honorably. So such openness and vulnerability and tenderness at the same time in those words. So we're learning and training here to, to be able to do that, not just to kind of go for it and open our petals and kind of let Pandora's box be known. We, we really have to do bit by bit, 
one moment, one experience at a time, if we can. So we're learning to open to the truth of how it is, come close to it and not to run away, to stay with the vulnerability. So I mentioned the other day in, in um, the uh, guidance in the morning about this acronym RAIN, and just like to repeat it. It starts with the um, letter R, so these are things to remember in your practice to first in this acronym with beginning R, recognize clearly what's going on and also to relax around it. So recognize, relax. And then A would be to allow it to unfold in its own timing, in its own way. Allow it to unfold. And then I, to take interest in it, not to turn away from it, you know, just to turn towards it and maybe look and say, what is this? And to let it in, to feel it. And the last N in rain is to relate to it as nature. This is nature unfolding. What has accumulated in this body-mind continuum is unfolding right now. And see it as natural, as nature. Because otherwise we might take it as some kind of fault we have in ourselves or limitation or criticize or judge ourselves negatively. So this is from, um, this has to do with what I just said. And it's from a poet writer named Mark Nepo, N-E-P-O. He went through his own challenges and he journeyed uh, through his health crisis and and journaled through it and and has his beautiful writings online. N-E-P-O is how you spell his last name. I... I don't put the poems on the board, so you just write his name down and uh, later you can look it up. So this poem touched me really deeply. He said, having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So through our practice, we're given the opportunity to turn these irritations into pearls of wisdom. I mean, it's hard, it's really hard to to remember that when, you know, when we're faced with a memory of something that someone did or that we did or something's right in our face at the moment or we're facing a world situation or whatever's out there that's really hard for us, for our clan, for our culture, for our tribe, for our race. 
it's really hard to remember that. But if we can take what we can take and then turn it into some kind of wisdom for ourselves and use compassion, then we can... It's the compassion that rubs it into a pearl. Trungpa Rinpoche described compassion as facing reality with a noble heart because it gives us the courage to face the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, the the truth of vulnerability, to be able to connect with all of life, not just with what we feel comfortable with and what we want, I look compassion up in the um, etymological dictionary and it's to come together with suffering. Actually, the C-O-M part means calm, means together. And passion, passion, means um, suffering, actually. So to connect with it. It takes a lot of courage to do that, to be willing to face parts of ourselves that are not noble, that we're not proud of, like shame and failure and prejudice of any kind, disdain for people we consider different, but they're just innocently living life in the way that They can, as harmlessly as they can. Our addictions and phobias, awareness brings everything into light. So we really, in a a retreat like this, we have to be willing to see all of it. To touch those places with humility and not humiliation. Not to say, "I'm, I'm a lesser person because this has come about now. Or, why me? You know, that's humiliation. But with some humility, that life is a lot bigger than, than this little thing called me. Hmm. So a lot of psychophysical knots are opened up in our practice. And so we're going to sometimes feel parts of those knots at one time, like a story may come up and bring about one part of the knot, maybe sadness, and another part of the knot would be anger, and another part would be jealousy, and another part would be um, self-righteousness, and another part will be helplessness. So it's one story can bring up many different things. And sometimes for me, it's just helpful to say, to open to the whole enchilada, they call it, and to say, okay, this is just dukkha. This is, this is really, I'm just facing the incredible discomfort of life. And I have to use sometimes the words of um, a compassion practice. May I open to this pain with tenderness. I sometimes have to use the compassion phrases 
So we use a word that actually um, recognizes and acknowledges the pain. So may I open to this pain and then the healing word with tenderness or with compassion or with gentleness or whatever helps you in that moment. So sometimes in your metta, you know, you open to some pain in another person or yourself, you can use a compassion phrase. You don't have to, you know, you can just follow it with a compassion phrase. It doesn't have to be all the same metta phrases. My, um, my main teacher, Seda Upandita, he would never use the word metta without using the word karuna, which means compassion. He would always say metta karuna. So if it needed metta, you would offer that. If it needed compassion, you would offer that in your practice. <clears throat> So some of you are familiar with the green Tara, that Tibetan deity um, who represents compassion. How many of you know of green Tara? Raise your hand. Yeah. Do you remember that she's got her right foot just kind of halfway off the cushion and it's ready? It's like, I'm ready to go. You know, wherever there is suffering, I'm ready to take a stand. I'm ready to be there. And so... Um, that's what I love about that one, about that particular deity. That she's ready to take action. And they say that compassion is like the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. As soon as you see it, you know, you, you, there's energy and it wants to move. And, <clears throat> and sometimes it's to stay still also. It's not to always try to, to try to fix something but maybe it's just to be with something. And that's the best thing we can do in that moment. I also want to include here some words about how compassion can be fierce and not necessarily be um, filled with hatred or aversion, even if it's strong, because the energy of compassion can be really strong. It's when people like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is able to stand up for the good of all of mankind, and especially for his tribe, for his group, you know, the Tibetan people. To stand up for what's right with a, with a heart of compassion that can take a lot of energy, but it's not the energy of hatred. <clears throat> it can still be fierce. It's the strength and the fierceness of no, like Martin Luther King Jr. when he stood up and he said no to violence. He said no to inequity. He said no to racism or discrimination of any kind, gender, creed, color, spiritual beliefs. The no is not about hatred, but it's out of respect and compassion, and skill to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to let this continue. Here's the boundary. 
to stand up for our own boundaries too, personally. So granted, we may not radically change the world with this approach to ourselves and others, but in fact, transforming our own hearts is a real possibility. It sends ripples of harmony out into the world. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. So there's something rare and beautiful to walk through life with this truth of living with the changing beauty that you know we see so wonderfully here at this time of the year, the changing beauty of life, but also to be with the difficulty, you know, of how it is in our hearts you know, through our silence. Sometimes the juxtaposition of the beauty out there and, and what goes on in, in here is, is kind of hard to bear at all. But our hearts can get really big and it's able to hold a lot more than we can imagine sometimes. To be able to hold it all with dignity, clear seeing, with grace, with courage. This is what compassion is. So I offer this for your contemplation. May it lead to your benefit and happiness. Let's sit for a moment. Time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.